using a digital Bible, we are using the CSB translation. So it's the season of Scripture, all the revelation of God. It turns out you can take the Word of God and you can twist it for your own purposes. I know, you're shocked, right? But it turns out you can take the law of God, which was meant for good, and twist it and use it for evil. One contemporary example for you would be the Russian patriarch Kirillin. This is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church uh, in, you guessed it, Russia. Uh, though the Orthodox Church is decentralized and so it doesn't have a single pope but various patriarchs over various countries, the Russian patriarch recently has said and made these controversial comments saying that for Russians to oppose the invasion of Ukraine is the force of evil. It's the force of evil. It's Satan and his forces in Russia that are causing the people of Russia to oppose the Russian war effort in Ukraine. That Russia is the defender of the faith against Western democracies, which are apparently against the faith. That the invasion of the Ukraine is a holy war against those who oppose God and against Westernism. So if you're Russian and you oppose it, then you're an enemy of God, he says. Furthermore, he has also declared that anyone fighting in it gets a special dispensation from the church and from God, straight to heaven, if you're a Russian fighter going to fight in this. It turns out you can use the word of God, the prophecies and scripture, in order to forward evil purposes. Again, I know you're not shocked by this. This is just one example. And since that example is from perhaps two weeks ago when this patriarch was making headlines, it may not even be the most current example. Because after all, two weeks have passed by in which people have been able to use the word of God wrongly to forward evil purposes rather than godly purposes. Since this is not a new problem, it is no surprise the people of Israel in the days of Christ were curious how Christ was going to talk about the law. What did Christ think about the Old Testament? What did Christ think about the book of Moses? What did Christ think about all the prophecies and the prophets and the law of God? So here, towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has to answer this very problem. Jesus answers this question for everyone. He doesn't hide about it. He doesn't twist anything. But Jesus himself declares that his relationship to the law of God is to fulfill it. Let's pray together and let's read scripture. Father God, I thank you that you are so kind. I thank you that you're so gracious to us. I thank you that you've spoken to us. I pray that when we hear your word today, we wouldn't harden our hearts, but that we would hear and that we would believe. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord for us. Jesus doesn't mince words, but tells it very clearly. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the most righteous people around you, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Forget about special dispensations and special blessings. If you are not the holiest of the holies, if you are not perfect, then you're not getting in to heaven. On the one hand, Jesus gives us a crystal clear answer. On the other hand, he says, you know, he doesn't come to abolish the law. It's easy enough. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, which is also very clear, except what does it mean to fulfill the law? Christians all throughout time, uh, since Christ said these words, have been thinking about and contemplating the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or an even easier way to say it for you and I is, okay, so you're a Christian, perhaps. And if you're a Christian here today, what is the Old Testament to you? What is the book of Leviticus to you? What are the laws and the prophets to you? How do we even relate to these? Are they, are they done and gone? I mean, clearly none of us are trying to keep the dietary laws, and none of us are trying to keep the dress codes of the Old Testament. And none of us are trying to keep these rules, so what is the Old Testament law to us? What are we supposed to be doing and how are we living with it given that Christ came to fulfill it? The best way to answer what Jesus means by fulfilling this law is not to stop with this passage, but to keep reading on in the Sermon on the Mount. See, the next five, six passages that come along here after this one are Jesus saying, and very familiar to you here in the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus says, you've heard this, but now I'm here to tell you this. And usually when preaching through this or going through these things, we take them as separate pieces. And in fact, as I've preached through the Sermon on the Mount to you in the past, that's exactly what I did. It's piece by piece, passage by passage. We took section by section. You've heard not to murder. You've heard no divorce. You've heard these things over and over again. But, but if you look at them all together, you'll see that each one of them is an example of how Christ fulfills the law rather than abolishing it. They all go together. It's not separate chunks to be considered Uh, one, and then the next week, a week later, considered the next one. But rather, they're all meant to be considered together. And in fact, when Christ says, I have come to fulfill the law and your righteousness will have to surpass that of the Pharisees, he doesn't leave you hanging there, but he gives you more information about it. And these, he gives you these five examples about what must be done. But to give away the end of it a little bit to you before we consider each one of them, What Christ means when he says he fulfills the law is that the law fulfilled is a right-hearted person doing right action before God. The thing that unifies all of these, you have heard this, but I tell you this, is that in every situation, the people who heard the law were taking it and trying to justify themselves or make themselves technically correct without actually changing their hearts to be like God's heart. The fulfillment of the law is not a person who is technically or legally justified as being all right. The person who fulfills the law is the one who wants right 
and out of a right heart does right actions. That's the basis for how God, that's how Jesus answers, you have heard this, but I tell you this. He says, you have heard this and you used it to justify yourself legally, but I'm telling you this. You need to change your hearts as well. But still, we will find by the end of this passage that we cannot fulfill the law. It's not simply a changed understanding of the law that Jesus offers. It's a changed understanding of ourselves as well. Fulfilling the law is something that we can't do, and so Christ needed to fulfill the law on our behalves. And so Christ did. You are aware of Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church, his famous posting of the 95 Theses on the door to the church in 1517. 1517, he goes and he puts together some discussion points. That's what these 95 Theses are, some discussion points. His goal is to create some discussion about what's going on within the wider Catholic Church, some practices that he doesn't care for and that he thinks need to be changed. He wasn't looking to split from the church at that time. He was simply looking to reform some of its worst practices and to do this by discussion, which was a common way of doing this sort of thing at the time. Well, one year later, in 1518, he got his way, and there was the disputation that happened in Heidelberg in 1518, and by then, a year later, he had, ref uh, he had refined the theses down into simply 28 of them. And so the agenda for this disputation, this debate that happened in Heidelberg in 1518 was 28 theses, just 28 of them. But the last of them is to me perhaps the most important. The last thesis is this, the love of God finds nothing in man, but creates in him that which is pleasing to God. This is the fulfillment of the law. God comes into our lives. The law comes to Israel. And the love of God comes to a person and finds nothing. There is nothing inside of us that can answer to the love of God or fulfill his purposes. The love of God finds nothing in a man but creates in him that which is pleasing to God. This, I tell you, is the fulfillment of the law. In order to understand what Christ means even better by the fulfillment of the law, let's look one by one at these six examples Christ gives. First, in verse 21, he says this, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary. While you're on your way with him to court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. First he says, and rightly so, he quotes the law. He says, you've heard it. It's in the law. Don't murder. 
It's not just in the law, it's in the Ten Commandments. You know this one. Do not murder. But again, if the idea is you can do what you want so long as you... I didn't murder anybody. We've heard this sort of attitude about sin ourselves, has we not? And even the people in Jesus' time had the same attitude going on. Well, you know, we didn't murder anybody. That's the important piece here. We have technically kept the Ten Commandments. So even if we haven't kept the heart of the Ten Commandments, even if we haven't changed ourselves to want what God wants, we didn't murder anyone. And that needs to count for something. But for Jesus, the fulfillment of the law is not simply technically keeping it. The fulfillment of the law is a transformed heart. So he says, you've heard don't murder. Great, it's a good start. But I'm telling you, don't harbor murderous thoughts in your heart. What kind of person would we be if we didn't murder anybody, but we spent time fantasizing about other people receiving what's coming to them? If we spent our time fantasizing about the destruction of our enemies or people we didn't like, if you get cut off by another car and your go-to thought is to imagine what it would be like for them to wreck immediately in front of you and then prove how righteous you were and how bad they are, you've not fulfilled the law. And you chuckle because Jesus' teachings here absolutely reveal what is in our hearts. Oh, good for you. You didn't murder anybody. But look into your own heart, each and every one of us. Look into your hearts and see. Have we not fantasized about and harbored? Have we not fantasized about and harbored all sorts of evil thoughts? I mean, have we not wanted bad for the people around us? Yeah, you might be technically corrected by the law. You didn't murder anybody, but you have not fulfilled the law. And here, Jesus takes it even one step further. It's not enough to not have bad stuff in you. Okay, let's say perhaps you were the person who didn't wish bad for anybody else. Let's say you were the person who didn't have a knee-jerk reaction to, I'm going to get them, or I hope they get there somehow. I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to rejoice when somebody else does. Let's say perhaps that's not in your heart, okay? Great. This still does not fulfill the law. See, what Jesus says is, even more than simply not harboring murderous thoughts, you're going to have to transition to becoming the kind of person who creates peace in the world, who creates peace with enemies. It happens for us all the time, each and every one of us, where we don't want right. We simply don't want right but we do want to be technically or legally justified ourselves. To be able to say, well, I didn't do anything wrong while you're watching a train wreck happen. And it won't be enough for us to be technically, it won't be enough for us to even not harbor angry thoughts in our heart. You must, on the other hand, become the agent of peacemaking. Not just not introducing more anger into your heart into the world, but removing the anger that is there. That's what Jesus goes on to say. He says, okay, so you've come to worship, or talking in a Jewish context, you've come to the temple to offer your sacrifices before God, but you realize right then, oh no, 
there's some anger, there's some hate, there's some murderous thoughts out there. Things are not right between me and one of the brothers and sisters. What are you to do except pause even right there and go make things right immediately? It will not do to simply not have done wrong. We must ourselves be the kind of people who create peace. He says, are you going to court? What's your goal in going to court? To win? Not anymore. Not in Christ. Now the goal is to have made peace. Not just to have been justified before a court, but to have come to agreement and understanding without a court. To have gone and found the person and say, things aren't right between us, I know this, but maybe we don't have to go to court. Jesus is not teaching here, by the way, you should be smart about this. Rather, Jesus is teaching you should be peacemaking about this. How do you go to a person and say, how do you be the person who brings it up to go and say, hey, things aren't right, but let's make them right. Not by having it out. That never works for making it right. But by creating some peace together. By beginning with what I really want is not to be justified or to be declared that I was right. What I really want is to be at peace. You see, murder is wrong. You knew that one. But it begins in the heart, and it's not going to be enough to simply not murder or not harbor murderous thoughts. We must be peacemakers. The second example he gives is this. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your body parts than your whole body to go into hell. Well, if the teaching about anger didn't step on your toes enough, here you go. There's more. Jesus says everybody knows that adultery is wrong and you're not supposed to commit adultery. But what good is it for you if you said, you know what, I didn't do it. I didn't commit any adultery. But you spent all of your days fantasizing about committing adultery. How is that better? Did you keep the law? Did you live a life pleasing for God? Would you show up on the day of judgment expecting to a reward for him to place a medal around your neck? <laughs> I didn't commit adultery. Sure, but what good did you do? I mention it frequently because I think it's hilarious and worth mentioning, though now it is a very old Jeff Foxworthy joke. But he joked once about talking with his grandfather on the occasion of his grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, 50 years. And he said, man, 50 years. I went up and asked my grandfather, I said, that's incredible. How'd you guys make it for 50 years? And his grandfather said, it's easy. I didn't leave and I didn't die. I mean, fair enough, but have you fulfilled the marriage covenant if you just didn't leave and didn't die? No, you haven't. It's funny, but it will not be sufficient, nor is it the kind of marriage that God has ordained for you if you just simply don't commit adultery and you don't die. I didn't leave and didn't die. Was that a happy marriage? Was this a good marriage? Did you fulfill that covenant? 
Likewise, you will not have fulfilled the law of God if you were simply technically correct, but harboring all sorts of adulterous thoughts in your mind. We cannot harbor lustful thoughts. The fact that we have misordered desires that each and every one of us, that all people, a part of us, just wants bad. To understand what it is to be a human has to be to understand that all of us want what is evil sometimes. This is the beginning of coming to faith in Christ. Our desires are at best misordered. That would be the polite way to say it. But our desires, our hearts are simply evil. And what we want sometimes is our own justification. What we want is for our enemies to get what's coming to them. What we want is all sorts of lustful, passionate ideas that will only harm us and will do us no good. It simply will not do when these desires come up in your heart and in your mind to nurse them, to hold on to them, to keep thinking about them, to keep them close to you and expand upon them. Rather, we must remove them altogether. And then, in fact, Jesus gives a more serious command. Once again, it's a, but wait, there's more sort of thing. He says, if, if it's your eye that's causing you to lust, gouge it out. If it's your hand that's causing you to lust, cut it off. These are serious words from the Lord. Though we should understand rightly this as hyperbole. Two reasons. One, you need not gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. But the hyperbole means you must take this seriously. And you must do what you can. It won't be enough to simply not nurse lustful thoughts. But you're going to have to avoid certain people, certain places, certain times, certain devices. You'll have to avoid these things when self-control becomes difficult for you. What Jesus is saying is do whatever it takes. You'll also understand it's not your eye or your hand that's wrong. It's your heart that is wrong. We're wrong all the way to the core, and thus we cannot fulfill the law rightly as Jesus teaches it. Let's keep going. Connected to that one, a teaching about divorce, verse 31. It was also said, whenever, uh, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It seemed good to me seven years ago when I became the pastor here that the Sermon on the Mount is where I should start preaching. You know, I was like, hey, new pastor here at a church, and you know what, let's start with Jesus' sermon and we'll go on through it. It was also surprising for me then that I spent a lot of time sweating and worrying it while I was preparing for those sermons in the first few months that I was preaching. Okay, now we're going to buckle up. It's time to talk about divorce and remarriage, an issue which is close to all of us. It's simply all around us, but that's not something new. If the teaching is here, then the problem was there at that time as well. So if the problem was there and the problem is here, then it's nothing new for us either. The law in the Old Testament, the law of Moses that God gave said, just like it says in bold in our Bible, uh, when you read those sections that are emboldened in the Pew Bibles, those are a quote from the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. And this is in the Old Testament. What you're to understand about the law of Moses that was given to the people is that it didn't make them perfect 
but there's a, a way in which the law was to make them all better and more holy than the people around them. Jesus talks about this when he's questioned on this subject later. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus will be questioned. The disciples will even ask, what's that mean about divorce and remarriage? How does that work? And Jesus says, oh, the law was given like that, not because it was right. The law was given like that because your hearts were hard. And so the purpose of this law is not to legitimize divorce. The purpose of this law is to legitimize women who were unfairly cast out. At that time, in their culture, women were treated poorly. I suppose I don't have to say at that time and in their culture. Women are treated poorly. Women are abused. This is the way of things. It's awful, it's evil, it's terrible. But men treat women poorly. And in the world, they send them away. At this time when there's no ability to get a job or provide for yourself, if you're not pleasing to your husband and you're sent away, you're essentially thrown away. There's not an ability to provide for yourself. And so you have to do whatever it takes to scrounge, to do whatever is required of you in order to make it. And what the law did, the law of Moses, it wasn't necessarily legitimizing divorce, but legitimizing those women. It was making it easier for them, saying that if you're going to send a woman away, you have to give her a certificate saying that she is all right to be married again. The idea is you're going to have to send her away with provision. Because of the hardness of your hearts, is what Jesus is saying, there's going to be some people who are sending their wives away, but the law is going to make it easier on them. The law is going to lift Israel above the rest of the world and the way everyone else in the world treats women, the way everyone else in the world treats slaves, because slavery was around then amongst all people and all nations. The law of Moses didn't make these things all right, But it did make the Israelites treat the neglected, the poor, better than all of their neighbors were treating them. That's what it was about. But here, just as elsewhere in the gospel, what Jesus says is this command doesn't mean divorce is good in the eyes of God. It just means you're to do right and not treat women terribly, which remains true. The law was never to legitimize divorce. The law was to legitimize people, to make it easier on those who were otherwise cast aside and thrown away. But the people of Israel used this law to technically make themselves correct in their divorces. To be able to, if a man was powerful and important and had a wife or had wives, could threaten to, hey, listen, I'm going to send you off. If you don't do what's right, the law was still used by people to technically, legally justify themselves, even while doing what was awful in the eyes of God and mistreating those people who were not to be mistreated. You see this tragically in a modern context too, don't you? Have you ever heard anybody use the law of God to convince a woman to stay in an abusive relationship or be mistreated? This is a great evil, and it's the same sort of abuse of the word of God. It's the same sort of twisting. This is not the fulfillment of God, but to be sure, there have been plenty of people who've said, hey, hey, wife, hey, baby, uh, hey, honey, who've said to a wife, and it would be cavalier, uh, but who have said to a wife, hey, listen, I know I did wrong over there, 
but you can't leave. I, I'm apologizing, so you need to take me back. That's what God wants here. I know, I know this is like the sixth time. I know this is still going on, but you have to take me back because I read the Bible. Don't you see here? Uh, divorce is wrong, so you can't leave me. Now, this is evil. This is a modern attempt to use the word of God to twist it to legally or technically justify yourself while not fulfilling the law of God. See, what I mean to teach you is this. Then there were people who were using the law of God to mistreat other people and to twist it to make themselves legitimized in their own eyes, but they were never legitimized in God's eyes. And now there are still people and there's still a temptation in each and every one of us to use the law to technically justify ourselves while our hearts are far from God. So when Jesus teaches this, what Jesus teaches is that you are to love like Jesus and make covenants like Jesus makes covenants and to keep covenants like Jesus keeps covenants. The next section is this, verse 33. Again, you have heard it was said of our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by earth, because it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you can't make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more from this is from the evil one. Again, a good teaching of the Old Testament, a teaching of the law of Moses, which was to lift them up and have them act more godlike, if not completely, that they were not to break oaths because God keeps his promises. And so if you're going to be a people of God, you have to keep your promises as well. The trouble is, they created a system for keeping your promises I mean, you, you could have expected this, right? People still do this all the time, right? They create a system to make a promise, to make an oath, to obligate yourself to something, and then to have a sort of way of getting out of it when the time comes so that you don't have to keep it. You know that there's all kinds of people out there who are, oh, what do we call these people? Fast talkers? Slick? Greasy, people who you can tell for sure will say anything or promise anything to get you to do what they want, but then they will have a reason to get out of their promise later on. There will be some explanation or excuse. Uh, when I first arrived here, uh, I met somebody who was uh, a little slick. Uh, not here in the church, don't worry. I just, no, 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 I'm not telling anybody. I just, I met a guy who was... Uh, uh, who was just who was just telling stories? Who was a bit of a fast talker, and uh, and one of my friends who was here at the church said of this person, who was clearly not living right, said, "Yeah, whenever he's talking, it's sort of like he's trying to hide where the bodies are buried." It's a good way of saying, yeah, this person who always has a justification for everything. Every sentence begins with, "Well, here's the story about that." Every, everything he says was, well, what you need to know is there's always a caveat. There's always a proviso. There's always a quest for more loopholes. This happens in speech, just like it happens with marriage, just like it happens with hatred, just like it happens with all the laws. Seeking for a loophole in order to be able to be judged technically correct, but not actually obey what God wants. 
But there are no caveats in the kingdom of God. When we stand before Christ for judgment, he will get the judgment correct. There's no slick talking. There's no fast talking before him. There's no being judged technically correct. When God and his word pierce us right to the center of us and get us right completely and wholly, there's no excuses before him. And so we need to not make them now. If God is the kind of God who always tells the truth and who always keeps his promises, then we're going to have to be the kind of people who always tell the truth and who always keep our promises. If we do this, then we don't need to create a series or a system of jargon for saying, but no, I really mean it this time. But no, cross my heart, I promise you, this on my grandfather's grave, I am serious. You don't have to say those things if when you say yes, it always means yes. And when you say no, it always means no. And so we ourselves have to cultivate a reputation of being the kind of people who tell the truth, who don't say, uh, yes, but, or, well, you know, that's a good story, let me tell you. We don't become ourselves fast talkers or slick because Christ was not. He told the truth directly and clearly, and the truth always sets us free. The next passage, verse 38 you have heard, Jesus says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. For the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord, and a difficult word. You have heard it said in the law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is in the law of God. Thanks be to the Lord. And once again, the purpose of the law was to make people better than those around them. The way it works at that time, at this time, just the way the world works is, somebody hurts you, you go to crush them. You notice that when we think about justice, the scales are always tipped in our favor. So when we go to be retributive and to give back what we've received, it's always a little bit worse. You can see it really easily amongst children, who will once again become a sermon illustration for us right now. You can see it real easily in children. One child, you know, kind of pushes the other child. And what's the other one do? Really pushes back. Yeah, it doesn't just push back. The other child doesn't go, hold on a second pulls out a pen and paper and does the, uh, the math to figure out what's the right amount of justice. You know, how much is appropriate for me to push back now? They go at them harder. And what's that first child do then? Yeah, then it gets really hard and real violent. And suddenly you have a brother and a sister who are properly fighting and what's worse, yelling, interrupting the peace and the quiet. But it's easy to see in children, but it's true for all of us. And so the Old Testament law was to try and make it better. Listen, out there in the world, if somebody wrongs you, you go and crush them. But God's law says, let's make justice fair. If you're damaged, then the penalty will be fair and equal damage. The punishment is supposed to fit the crime. That's what eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth means. Is If somebody does something wrong, the right answer can't be murder or capital punishment for everything. 
But the punishment has to fit the crime, is what the Old Testament law was teaching to Israel. But the trouble is, people have used this in order to do what they wanted to get punishment and tip the scales the way they wanted to. And this is not of God. Because God is the kind of God who loves his enemies. This is the startling truth at the center of our faith. Our God is a just God. But even more than that, our God is merciful. Our God will bring justice, but even more than that, God desires for people to see mercy. God's desire is not to pour out judgment on you. God's desire is to pour out grace on you. Let's just take a moment and marvel at the heart of our God, who doesn't see enemies as something to be crushed, but who sees enemies as people who could be objects of mercy if they would convert and put their trust in him. Let's just marvel for a moment at how great God is. He doesn't look down, excited to bring judgment, but that he himself came down to take on the judgment of God for us. This is the grace and the greatness of our God. And this, I tell you, is the fulfillment of the law. Not that everyone should be justified solely by their own actions, but that we could be justified by Christ's actions. In this way, Jesus comes and says, I'm not here to abolish the law. It's not going away. But I am going to fulfill it. Now watch and see the life of Christ. Christ is the one who fulfilled the law for us. If you and I are going to be the kind of people who fulfill the law likewise then we're going to have to live in the way of Christ, which means ourselves laying down our lives for our enemies, loving those who do not love us. This doesn't mean being taken advantage of, but it does mean our strategy is not first and foremost how to conquer our enemies. Our strategy, first and foremost, is how to convert our enemies. How do we help these people trust Christ? This person yelling at me, how do I help them to know the love of God? This person who's bringing suit against me, how do I help them see how good God is and be converted just like I was? This is the fulfillment of the law. By way of application, what should you do today given that Christ has fulfilled the law for us and now we who follow Christ seek to fulfill the law ourselves? First of all, you need to be converted to be like Christ. As Martin Luther said at the beginning of this, the love of God finds nothing in man, but the love of God creates in us everything he wants to see. In order to fulfill the law, you must be converted first of all. There is nothing in you that can be pleasing to God, but I tell you today that if you allow Christ to, he will put something into you that will be pleasing to God. It is his Holy Spirit. A down payment, a pledge, a deposit that then from the inside will begin to transform the rest of us so that the life of Christ 
the life of a Christian, rather, is receiving the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform the rest of us into the fulfillment of who Jesus Christ is. First of all, come and be converted. Second, allow the Holy Spirit to continue to change all of you to be in the image of Jesus Christ. Third, realize we don't need to be more righteous. We're going to need a whole new righteousness. It won't be enough for us to simply to try and act more righteous. We need a newer, better righteousness. But I tell you, for anyone who's in Christ Jesus, just as he wore our sins upon himself on the cross, so now we can wear his righteousness every day of our lives. He wore our sins so that we could wear his righteousness, live in the righteousness of Christ. You also need to make it your goal to live pleasing to him, not to live technically or legally justified in the eyes of people around you. The temptation will come again and again for you, dear Christians, to simply have been demonstrated to be right in the eyes of people around you. This will not be sufficient for us let us instead learn to live lives pleasing to Christ. We must also not, we have to stop looking at God for justification of us as we are and instead look to God to change us. You see all the time people who are looking for fame in Jesus' name. You see all the time people who are looking for a platform in Jesus' name. A job or recognition. Somebody who wants to be able to tell and spin their own sins and their own life as if it's a comeback story now. You see all the time people who are seeking wealth, who are seeking to legitimize their own anger by calling it righteous anger. See, I was angry before, but now it's just righteous anger, so it's legitimate now. And I can go about being as angry as I want to and saying all kinds of awful things. We see people who don't want to keep their promises, but rather want to have a legitimate way to get out of them. We see people who say, mm, I don't like those people around me. I want to take them down a notch, but still be righteous myself. None of this fulfills the law. The fulfillment of the law is a heart after God that does right like God wants. The fulfillment of the law is a heart that wants to see other people converted, even people who make themselves enemies to us. The final application for us today is this. Even as we pursue the law of Christ, let us marvel at just how great the love of God is towards us and how it was Jesus Christ, our Lord, who fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for each and every one of us. Thanks be to God. Father God, I thank you that you're so gracious to us. I thank you that you're so good to us. Father, I pray that you would teach us to be righteous like you are. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you need to come forward today, you can. We're